0: Hey, welcome to The Space, formerly occupied by The Scrum, then by Boston's Race into History, and now by our new show, Talking Politics. I'm Adam Riley, and I want to thank you for sticking with us as this particular podcast evolves. Talking Politics, which you can also watch on Fridays at 7 p.m. on GBH Channel 2 or find online at our YouTube page, is going to have a lot in common with the two other shows I just mentioned— great guests, sharp insights, a blend of political and policy coverage, and hopefully substance without self-importance. But it's also going to be different. We'll be trying some new twists when it comes to identifying and executing stories. And also, we're going to incorporate a bunch of new voices you may not have heard from before. Take a listen and then please take a couple minutes and let us know what's working, what we should do differently, and what topics you would like us to tackle. You can email us at talkingpolitics at wgbh.org or find us online at gbhnews.org slash talkingpolitics. Thanks again. Tonight, it's a new twist on the show we've been bringing you over the past several weeks. With Boston's historic race into history over, we're taking a broader look at the big political stories around the region from here on out each and every Friday, talking politics. Of course, the biggest such story of this week was the announcement from Governor Charlie Baker Wednesday that he would not be running for a third term in office. Focusing on campaigning and focusing on politics and focusing on all the things that come with that just seemed to us like a big step away from what we should be focused on. We believe the pandemic means we really ought to just focus on the work and get it done. Perhaps even more surprising, though, was the announcement that Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito would not run for the top job either, leading to the obvious question, who will? So to recap, so far officially on the books, we have former state rep Jeff Deal on the right and Harvard professor Danielle Allen, former state senator Ben Downing, and current state senator Sonia Chang-Diaz on the left. Plus a slew of question marks, including Attorney General Maura Healey, who said shortly after Baker's announcement that she would be making a decision about whether she'd throw her hat in the ring soon. Of course, the list of others tossing their names into the rumor mill to see what catches on is growing by the day, with sources telling various reporters that Boston mayoral finalist Anissa Asabi-George is considering a run, as is former Boston mayor and current labor secretary Marty Walsh and his chief of staff, Dan Coe, among others. It has been a dizzying 50 or so hours as of this taping, with nearly a year to go until the 2022 election. So what more are we expecting? And does Baker's decision to bow out now signal there's just no room for moderation in politics anymore? Joining me to discuss are GBH State House reporter, Mike Dean, Bay State Banner, senior editor, Yawu Miller, and Boston Globe columnist, Joan Fanaki. Good to see you all, thank you for being here. Mike, let me start with you. You spent the day of Baker's announcement at the state house, surrounded by the people who have been running the state with him for the past seven years. What did they have to say about the governor's decision?
1: Uh, really, their response—the uh, response from Democrats—was as collegial as it has been the last seven years. Um, both Speaker Ron Mariano and Senate President Karen Spilka expressed, you know, thanks and grateful gratitude to uh, to. Both the governor and lieutenant governor for kind of working with them over the years. You know, collegial really is the word. In both of their statements, these Democratic leaders said that they didn't always agree with Baker, but they always, you know, reached a compromise, got to a final product. And you can see that because Baker very rarely vetoed anything. And when he did, oftentimes Democrats would work with him to get it to a place where he could then sign it. Um, that kind of showed through. What we didn't hear a lot from Democrats was really any kind of criticism um, again that the building's still pretty closed. There's not a lot of Democrats running around up here. Um, Not too much on the political side because really the last thing those Democratic leaders want to get involved with is the Democratic primary for governor, which I think that throughout next year we're going to see is going to be focused on, uh, you know, conflicts and lack of action here at the Statehouse among Democrats uh, more than those Democrats are going to target Republicans. The
0: governor said, as he was explaining his choice, that one of the reasons he's not seeking a third term is that there's a lot of important work to get done in 2022 as Massachusetts hopefully emerges from the pandemic and that he didn't want that work to be overshadowed by or impeded by politics and what he called with, I think, palpable contempt, the discourse around politics. But hasn't he just made it more difficult to accomplish what he's hoping to accomplish
1: by saying he's not gonna run for a third term? The lame duck issue uh, does come up, and some people might say, well, if Baker's not going to be in office, then uh, why would Democrats want to do what he wants, what the Baker agenda is to begin with? But to a certain extent, they never really have been completely on board with the Baker agenda. As far as what the legislature passes, it's the Mariano and the Spilka agenda that wins the day. Um, So Baker's still going to have a very firm hand over the executive branch, and I think that's what he sees as his goal here. He wants to run the executive branch, those agencies, those departments uh, through the rest of the pandemic, through the rest of his term, without having to be distracted by campaigning, especially campaigning in what would have been a pretty nasty Republican primary fight throughout next year.
0: Yeah, which we will get to in a little bit, I promise, because I'm fascinated by that, (laughs) among other parts of this story. Yawu Miller, when the governor said he was not going to seek a third term, it unleashed this tsunami of speculation in which seemingly every possible name imaginable was bandied about as a potential candidate for governor. The writer Megan Sarah Johnson mentions some possible names on Twitter. She suggested Kevin the stoner kid from No on Question 4, Marty the stop and shop robot Papaginos at the Charlton Plaza and the giant polar seltzer bear among other candidates. There are some actual potential candidates who have already ruled it out, including former governor Mike Dukakis who told the podcaster Jesse Hahn that he did not think Massachusetts was ready for a candidate who would be 92 at the end of his term. And yet, as we mentioned up top, former Mayor Walsh his former chief of staff, Dan Coe and former mayoral candidate, Anissa Asabi-George, are all reportedly at least thinking about it. Uh, I want to focus on Walsh in particular for a moment. Why do you think he might be interested in leaving a pretty prestigious job in Washington, D.C. to come back home and run for governor?
2: Well, first of all, he never was interested in staying in the mayor's office for, you know, for as long as his predecessor, Tom Menino, did. Um, I think when he saw the, um, the in 2020, when he was challenged by Michelle Wu and Andrea Campbell, um, he could have won that race, but he would have expended a lot of political capital. He, um, you know, they were running to his left. He would have run as a more moderate at a time when uh, abashedly progressive candidates have been winning, um, uh, you know, at the statewide level, including uh, Ed Markey. Um, running on a you know very progressive platform, so you know if he I think he harbored um, you know ambitions gubernatorial ambitions going back a ways, and I think by by leaving the administration by by not running for re-election and by you know heading into the Biden administration, he sidestepped a bruising political season that would have left him weakened. Now he he, he retains his six million dollar war chest. I think he's really well positioned to run for governor. Hmm.
0: I was surprised, maybe more than I should have been, to to hear Anissa Asabi George's name come up. I think Gin Dumpsius at the Dorchester Reporter was the first to say that she might be thinking about it. I was surprised for obvious reasons. Just a few weeks ago, she lost the Boston mayor's race to Michelle Wu pretty badly. She was routed, I think it's fair to say. Do you think she's actually thinking about running for statewide office here as a Democratic candidate for governor, or is she allowing her name to be out there because it's gratifying to have your name in the mix?
2: It's really hard to say. I mean, it, it does help her to have her name out there um, for people to think of her as a, as, as a potential candidate for statewide office. She has name recognition that um, will wane you know, month by month uh, if she doesn't run for anything else. Um, I don't see her jumping in the race if Walsh, who she has always been politically close to, jumps in, unless she's running as lieutenant governor.
0: Yeah, if she did, it'd be awkward to give her mother and Walsh's mother a ride to the polls if they were gonna be splitting their votes or something like that. Uh, Joan Venaki, I wanna talk a little about Maura Healey, if we can, because for so long, the conventional wisdom has been that if and when Maura Healey decides to run for governor, she is gonna be the overwhelming favorite and maybe the presumptive, uh, presumptive nominee on the Democratic side. And yet, the three candidates that we mentioned earlier, Ben Downing, Danielle Allen, and Sonia Chang-Diaz, they've been working at this for a while now, getting their message out, building their campaign apparatuses. And the track record, as you know, of Massachusetts attorney generals running for higher office is not great. It didn't work out for Scott Harshbarger. It didn't work out for Tom Riley, who was supposed to be guaranteed the governorship until Deval Patrick came along. More recently, it didn't work out well for Martha Coakley. So do you still buy the idea that she is going to be the odds-on favorite if she decides to run?
3: Well, Adam, you just gave my whole answer away.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> Great minds.
3: At any rate. I mean, if anything, we should know at this point is that you know conventional wisdom, I mean, Everything right now is unconventional. So I would say, you know, conventional wisdom that it's a slam duck for Healy is as likely to be, you know, thrown askew as anything else. Um, yeah, I mean, the history for attorney generals running in Massachusetts is is a sad history. And I think Tom Riley is the real cautionary tale right now. When he got into that primary race in 06, all the money was on him that he was going to win. And then this unknown person from Chicago named Deval Patrick parachuted in and the political world changed and Deval Patrick changed history in Massachusetts. And it's possible that could happen again. Um, you know, Healy's got the problem of every prosecutor, like the top cop known for suing people, not necessarily making policy. But I will say this in her on her behalf. I mean, she's really good at retail politics. She doesn't, have the look and feel of 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 a Riley or an Andrew Lelling on the Republican side. I mean if you've ever seen her work a room. Um so I think, yeah, I mean, I would be cautious about conventional wisdom, but I do think she's a really strong contender.
0: And I guess it's worth mentioning, you know, Tom Riley has a cautionary tale. I suggested him, you suggested him. But Deval Patrick was also a remarkable political talent. There aren't many people who possess the native ability to run for higher office that, that he had. I mean, he, he was uh, a force of nature that kind of came out of nowhere, and I'm not sure that we see that in this race at this point yet. Let's turn to the GOP for a little bit. You mentioned uh, Lelling as a, a possible candidate, which we'll get into momentarily, but first I want to talk about the way the Republican base reacted to, uh, to Charlie Baker's announcement. Former President Trump weighed in, as he is wont to do. He cheered the fact that Baker wasn't going to be running again. He said that Baker has been very selfish as governor and also called him a rhino or Republican in name only. Of course, Charlie Baker has been vastly more popular in Massachusetts than President Trump. Trump lost badly here to Hillary Clinton in 2016. He lost even more badly to Joe Biden in 2020. And yet, when Jeff Deal, the only Republican in the race, put out his statement reacting to Baker's announcement, he made a point of noting that he's been endorsed by President Trump. And when the mass GOP put out their statement saying, this is wonderful, it's a new day for the party, we are the party of Donald Trump, they mentioned Trump's name not once, not twice, but three times in a very brief statement. Is there some kind of sophisticated strategic calculus that I'm missing here? Because this doesn't seem to me like a good way to get ready to win a general election.
3: Are you asking me? I am asking you. Am I missing (laughs) something? Because (laughs) I
0: I may well be. I just can't figure out what what they're doing. I mean,
3: I wrote that um, the Massachusetts GOP has a death wish, and I believe that. But it's possible that they know something the rest of us don't know. I mean, I find it hard to believe that Jeff Deal, between his conservative credentials and the blessing of Donald Trump, could ever be the next governor of Massachusetts. But let's face it, I mean, elections are about choices. And it will matter who the Democrats run as their nominee. We know from the national stage that Republicans are masters at Um, painting the opponent before the opponent even opens their mouth, and demonizing Democrats. I mean, we we reflexively think that doesn't work in Massachusetts, Um, and I guess we'll find out. You know, I, I, I don't see it happening. It's also been out there that that deal may not be the nominee, maybe someone more in the Charlie Baker mold um, you know, gets into this race and changes the dynamic. And just one other quick thing I want yeah, to say. Please. I think what happens on Beacon Hill with the Democrats um, can frame, you know, will have something to say about what happens next November. How do the Democrats handle the months ahead? How do they spend money? Do they act like adults? Or uh, um, And that can change the dynamic of this race.
0: That's a good point. I should note, uh, after I stole your thunder a moment ago, you have now stolen my thunder, I think actually on two fronts, but I'm just going to roll with it. Um, Mike Dien, Uh Joan Venacki brought up Andrew Lelling, the former U.S. attorney here in Massachusetts, as a possible uh, uh, sort of alternative mm-hmm. to deal. Are there other
1: Republican names who we should be keeping an eye on? There are a few. Honestly, I think that um, a lot of these potential Republicans kind of were left flat footed by uh, Karen Polito's exit from the race. That was really the, the biggest surprise. We knew Baker was going to go one way or the other. I don't think anyone really saw that Karen Polito would also decline to run. So that really does open up the kind of Baker side of the party, uh, as you're putting it. Uh, I think people are looking at the Baker cabinet. Uh, folks like Economic and Development Secretary uh, Mike Keneally has a name that has been coming up. Yeah, um, Joan mentioned Lelling, who was a Trump appointee, but certainly doesn't cut that Trumpian profile yeah, as much sort as of Jeff Deal does. Yeah, um, there are some others. I think everyone's still thinking, well, what about you know a self-funder? What about you know one of Charlie Baker's rich friends uh, who might be a Republican who, who might want to take the job? That could kind of you know upend this Republican primary. Uh, but no, you're absolutely right. It's going to be uphill either way, uh, unless someone really can attract as many unenrolled voters to participate in that 2022 Republican primary as possible to kind of drown out that um, hardcore Trump element that's gonna be in control of that primary. I wanna uh, dig into that just a little
0: bit more, and Yawu, I'm gonna turn to you here. There was some polling done before Baker said he was gonna take a pass on another run, which showed just how strong The Trump wing of the party is at this point among Massachusetts Republicans. Uh, One poll in particular showed among likely Republican primary voters, Baker was trailing Jeff Deal in a hypothetical matchup by 21 percentage points. And Deal's margin got significantly larger when respondents, again, likely Republican primary voters, were reminded that President Trump has already endorsed Deal. So Yahoo! How exactly might someone who was even a little bit to the left of Jeff Deal overcome the party's preference for Trump and Trumpism?
2: I think it would be very difficult. Um, you know, uh, uh, the, the polarity in the you know, Republican Party and you know, national politics has certainly uh, come into Massachusetts uh, among Republicans. And um, you know the secret sauce Republicans have had running for statewide office for the last thirty years, going back to Weld, is you know uh, you know uh, candidates who get along well with Democrats, who have friendly relations with the mayor of Boston, with you know with the uh, legislative leadership, and in Deal or you know any of the more right-leaning uh, Republican candidates, we don't have that. Um, so, but, but again, you know, the, the party has really shifted hard to the right. So I don't know how, um, you know, I mean, if Baker couldn't do it, I don't know who could in the in the Repu- Republican Party.
0: I want to pull back a little bit as we wrap up this gubernatorial discussion. We may turn to other topics if we've got time. I think we might have a couple minutes to dive into some stories that may have been overlooked amid Baker's big announcement. But Joan Venacki, with... One year left in Baker's governorship. I'd love to get your take on what the secret of his success has been when it comes to how Massachusetts voters feel about him. Because even when things went wrong, and sometimes they did, for me, the uh, deadly COVID outbreak at the Holyoke Soldiers' Home is probably exhibit A there. Even when things went badly on his watch, people thought really highly of him and the job he was doing. Why do you think that is?
3: Gosh, I've spent a lot of time pondering that question, Adam. You said uh, I've always thought that partly it was because he was really tall, but he He is is a tall guy. I, I think it comes down to the fact that he's sane and civil at a time when our politics is anything but. And if you think about the framework of his governorship, he was elected first in, I think, 2014. That was like right before Trump. Trump comes in, starts running, everything went bonkers. And um, Charlie Baker has been a voice of reason. He seems in charge. He's been fiscally responsible. He's reigned in the worst instincts of Democrats in Massachusetts. And I think that speaks a lot to his popularity. I mean, to me, his biggest flaw is that he never says, the buck stops here, Um, it's on me. And it doesn't seem to bother anybody, however. So I guess, as Pope Francis said, who am I to judge?
0: How about uh, you, Yahoo, and you, Mike? And let's do it in that order. I'd love to get your thoughts on, uh, I used the term Trumpism earlier in the conversation. I'd love to get your thoughts on bakerism and why it worked and maybe even whether other candidates might be able to replicate it. So, Yahoo, why don't you kick it off?
2: Um, you know, again, it's, it, it, you know, uh, he, part, part of, part of it was for Baker in 2014 was that he, uh, you know, didn't have a strong opponent in the Democratic Party, not strong, you know, not anywhere near as charismatic as Duvall was um, when he ran four years before. Um, you know, that was, you know, the stars aligning for Baker, you um, but again, yeah, it goes back to, to um, just being able to, you know, relate well to to uh, Democrats. He, uh, Baker had an extraordinary ability to connect to people. I remember seeing him in a Dorchester Day parade, um, zigzagging, like he basically ran the entire four-mile route uh, along Dorchester Avenue, huh. I'm thinking, yeah, this guy's got energy. And then I also remember seeing him, you know, at a at a uh, cookout uh, in Roxbury, and uh, you know, and uh, he ran into this guy, and he's like, "I know you," you know. He he recognized him from when he played uh, high school basketball, and you know, they were rivals on different teams. Just you know, he had an extraordinary ability. He has an extraordinary ability to connect with people. Um, that's you know, part of his secret sauce.
0: That's really interesting. I don't think something that gets mentioned a lot. Mike, you get the final word on what makes bakerism
1: work. Yeah, it really is that, uh, that center-right-but-not-here-to-make-waves kind of conservatism that he brought to the office. Um, he, I think one of his greatest successes, at least here in the Statehouse, was um, assuring Democrats that he has everything handled, you know that his agencies were going to run, his cabinet were going to be competent, and they were going to uh, execute to the, the letter of the law, more or less. Um, that started to fray a little bit during the, the COVID pandemic, when a lot of federal money came through. Some Democrats weren't happy with the way Baker was you know, uh, relying on that or spending it or releasing it or not releasing it. Um, And we kind of saw that throughout the year. But otherwise, I think most of the moderate Democrats that run this building were very happy to have a moderate Republican in the corner office. Um, They never were challenged too, too much to go down the progressive road. And uh, they never really put those progressive bills on Baker's desk to force him to veto it. So, uh, you know, all those dynamics in play put Massachusetts government pretty square in the center, and that's where the moderate Democrats and the moderate Republicans want it. All right. We have a little time. Let me check the clock. About three and a half minutes to look at anything else
0: of note that happened this week that was obscured by Baker's announcement. So let's do it. Actually, if you're cool with this, Mike, I'd love to stay with you and go Mike, Yahoo, and Joan. So Mike, is there anything in particular you think people should either uh, be made aware of or reminded of that was lost in the shuffle when it comes to Baker?
1: Yeah, well, um, the legislature spent $4 billion in federal and state funds that really got swept away by uh, Baker's announcement in the politics. Uh, there wasn't a lot of oxygen left for this, but this is a story that, you know, on GBH we've been covering for months and months now. Um, the Baker had initially wanted to spend it himself through the governor's office. The legislature essentially took it away from him and said, no, we're going to put it through our process. That process has taken months and months. They missed their own Thanksgiving deadline to get a spending bill in place uh, there. They're finally going to pass it uh, and get it onto his desk by this weekend. Um, We don't know if he's going to sign it outright or not, but it's a huge chunk of money. And I'm always here to remind people that what their legislature does is spend their money. So do not ignore these kind of giant spending bills and the the how and the when they pass them.
0: Excellent. Yahoo, you're up next. Big story that might have been missed?
1: I I
2: just seconding uh, Dean, you know it's, it it really underscores the the tremendous power the legislature has that to, um you know over the governor um you know that that they were able to 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 get that done to take that out of uh, Baker's hands and uh you know include all their earmarks and various things that are going you know to happen across the state um I think that was a the, the major sort of unrecognized story
0: okay uh Joan Venaki You get the last word, unless we have a little time left, in which case I'll get the last word. But give it a shot.
3: Okay, I'll say two quick things. One that I read under Yahoo's byline that Ed Flynn is going to be the next um, city council president. I think that's really interesting for, you know, like what it says about the Flynn dynasty and also the progressives on the council rallying behind somebody who's not necessarily – in their mold. It's an echo of what Michelle Wu did way back when, when she went with Bill Linehan. Mm -hmm. Um, The second interesting story, I think it looks like Rachel Rollins is on her way to be the next US um, attorney. And I mean, unless, you know, something happens and, um, you know, somehow they get some Democrats to say no. Um, and, And I think, you know, that is an interesting development.
0: That is a really interesting development. Both in terms of substance, because she's going to bring her uh, very unconventional, at least compared to who we've had in the past, approach to that job, assuming she gets it. And it opens up uh, another post, the Suffolk DA's post, which we can talk about here in future episodes. Uh, Joan Venaki, Yawu Miller, and Mike Dean, thank you all for being here to kick this stuff around. Thanks, Adam. That is going to do it for tonight, but do come back next week. We will continue Talking Politics, addressing a wide range of issues affecting your lives around the state. If there's something in particular you want to hear about or people you want to hear from, let us know. Email us at talkingpolitics at wgbh.org or visit us online at gbhnews.org slash talkingpolitics. You can also find this show there in full and sign up for our politics newsletter while you're at it. We'll be back next Friday at 7 online and on GBH2. For now, thank you for watching and good night.